This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, it's been kind of a whirlwind week, as I'm sure most people uh, who are paying attention to the news are aware of. Uh, it has been election day basically for four days at this point. <laughs> uh, we have some results at the local level, which we're going to share shortly. Uh, just kind of an overview for this episode, we're going to look into the election results. Uh, You wrote a great breakdown for the results. um, And then we're also going to kind of look at Door County's historical voting record. Uh, So it'll be an election-filled episode in the first half. Uh, We'll do a little bit on COVID-19 because there's some stuff to talk about there. Uh, And then we're going to take a break. And when we come back, you have an interview with Deb Fitzgerald, kind of about uh, another story that's been rumbling over the last couple of weeks, uh, some things going down at Fincantieri Bay Shipbuilding. So got a stacked episode for everybody. Uh, Anything that you want to mention before we jump right into the election coverage, Miles? No, um, maybe just a question. I'm curious how, what was your like viewing and uh, news consumption approach to the last few days with the election. Right. So uh, I'm actually glad that you asked that because the way that I've been dealing with it is I have uh, two members of my family, basically, that I've been going back and forth with, uh, my wife and my sister, who have both been, you know, very nervous, following the results, looking at, you know, all the news coming in. I have been fairly even keeled this whole time. The vast majority of my coverage is checking the AP results, the Associated Press, uh, and then following up with 538's breakdown of what's going on. Um, 538 does a really good job of getting very granular with looking at the votes coming in. So uh, from a from a top view, you can look at results and be like, okay, so there's this percentage of the vote remaining. Uh, this person's in the lead. Uh, how's that going to shake out? But when you start looking at breakdowns at the county level, you you know, get really granular with it uh, and and look at how those counties have traditionally voted, uh, what remains, that kind of stuff. Uh, the, The projections have been pretty similar this entire time, at least from 538's perspective. So I went to bed on election night feeling like I knew what was going on, and that hasn't really changed until today, basically. So I've been kind of even keeled with it, uh, trying to talk my sister and my wife off the cliff as they're like, what's going on? I don't know what's happening. Is it going to go this way? Is it going to go that way? Which if you're only looking at, you know, the results from the the Times or MSNBC or the Associated Press, if you're just looking at it from that level, yeah, it's been kind of what's going to happen. Uh, but when you get really granular, which I think is maybe the nerdiest, but, you know, most interesting part of this whole election process for me, uh, that's when you can see like, okay, this has been projected for since Tuesday night. Not much has changed in the projections. So we kind of know what's going on yeah i went into it um thinking that there was a there was a scenario in which we would know most of the information right away if like like if florida went for biden that would be basically a sign that it was more or less over so the first state would basically tell you everything if it didn't go for biden you basically knew you were in for a several day event and it was interesting to see like so many um I flipped, I was flipping between MSNBC, Fox, CNN, bouncing around to see like what everyone was saying and, and flipping through the coverage all night. Um, and I generally just don't watch TV news. So this is like one of those rare nights when I do. And it was it's just as bad as I thought. Like it was so much of drumming up drama when the whole night, as soon as you know that Florida's um, was going for Trump, you're like, we're, you're not getting an answer. Like anybody expecting something to break and tell you everything was basically just playing it for ratings in my mind. I'm watching this whole thing like they're just trying to keep viewers engaged at this point because you could say like very clearly like you will not. And Pennsylvania said going into it, you earliest we're going to really know the results is Friday. And everyone knew that weeks in advance. And yet they still just played it up for drama, play it up for ratings. And that's when you got to remind yourself that like cable news is punditry. It is not news and it is a ratings game. It is not a service game. So we approach news reporting on anything differently here. Like we're not trying to keep eyeballs on a screen. Yes, we have advertising to sell, but generally this is my community. And for everyone who works here, generally lives here, you're trying to do a service for your community and getting the information out. They are trying to play a ratings game. So um, it was just kind of interesting how much they would play drama into every report that came through when there was no chance we were going to know 
a heck of a lot on election night. Right. And you are, you were probably five or six years old when in 2000. Yes. So you probably, you don't have any recollection of the Bush v. Gore election. I remember it. I remember it in the news, surprisingly. I don't yeah. remember much beyond that. So that one wasn't decided until December 12th. And in, in some minds was never really decided because it was just, they stopped the count. Um, by a Supreme Court ruling. But that one dragged on forever. And at that time, we would sit at Husby's and it would just, it was like the first time, this is pre 9 11. That was like the first time everyone was just glued to cable news for day in, day out, all day long. And that I could recall. And it was just like updates of every 20 votes that they had counted or <laughs> the evaluation of these hanging chads and all this stuff. So this drag out right now, what some people are saying, I can't believe it's like this. Like this actually is totally expected from my point of view and um, actually isn't all that dramatic <laughs> in many ways, especially once when you saw the Bush v. Gore thing. It's like, OK, you do have to do a lot to top this. I did reach out to Ted Olson. Um, he's the attorney who was George Bush's attorney in Bush v. Gore and um, was then George Bush Jr.'s solicitor general. He actually has a um, place in Door County. And I've interviewed him a couple other times. And I was hoping to get him to join the podcast to talk about this and kind of recollect what he went through back then and what it was like. Uh, he did respond to my email only to say, I am inundated with interview requests from <laughs> TV and radio. Uh, I just simply don't have the time and which I totally respect because like, there's much bigger outlets <laughs> that he, he's doing a lot of like cable news hits right now. But um, it, it has been interesting to talk to him in the past just because he's he's been on that Supreme Court stage. He's argued 60 some cases in front of the Supreme Court. So his view on it is very different than a lot of the um, back and forth that we we have here um, or that like anybody's having right now. <laughs> so um, but yeah, it was it's been interesting to watch. I basically thought like a real best case scenario for knowing a result was probably today as we're recording this on Friday. And it does look like Pennsylvania might I think as we're speaking, I think I've seen Vox Media and Business Insider have called it, but I don't know if any if the AP has at this point. AP has not called it as of the recording. Um, Nate Silver from 538 has basically called it, but he can't say anything until ABC calls it because 538 is a subsidiary of mm. ABC, I believe. So uh, it's it will it will be any minute basically mm. uh, as soon as things start calling it um, so by the time this podcast out comes yeah. out by the time you're listening to this you you might see the results and right. then it'll just be into the legal fight right and I, th I think the other thing to mention too just in terms of like watching the election as a layman and watching it as a nerd like we are uh, i feel like there is a, a level of nerdiness that you you have to jump into in order to be really looking at these results the way that that we are uh, i feel like the average person votes on election day and then expects their results that night or the next morning and and uh, there, there is a level of drama and confusion when you're looking at it from a very broad scope like that, right? Uh, two big buzzwords that have come out in the weeks leading up to this election are uh, red mirage and blue shift, right? So knowing that uh, a majority of Republican voters will vote in person on election day and the vast majority of mail-in ballots will have been cast by Democratic voters, you have this, this strong Republican turnout the night of the election, followed by the tides beginning to shift blue as mail-in votes are being counted throughout the week, right? So uh, those are things that people talked about in the weeks leading up to the election because of the number of mail-in ballots because of the pandemic, right? Uh, but I, I don't think the average American voter is paying attention to that kind of thing, right? I feel yeah. like as this has been going on, more news channels are talking about those kind of things, but you really had to be deep in the election coverage to kind of like the first time I heard of Red Mirage and Blue Shift was election night. Right. Hmm. And I, I consider myself pretty nerdy about this stuff. So it, it's one of those things where, like I said, if you're getting super granular and you're looking at how individual counties have voted in the past and what the mail in ballot percentage is, then, yeah, projections for Biden have been pretty strong all the way from election night and forward. Things are very close, uh, but it's not as like, it's not as topsy-turvy or, or is it going to go one way or the other as it might look from a broad level. So it's been it's interesting. Also, it's was very aggravating to watch so many people use like your sports analogies or even like saying like, he's ahead here or he's behind here or, or he's coming back in this state. Like nobody's ahead or behind. It's, it's not like, it's not quarters. Like there's no comebacks. Right. It's like votes tallied, count them. And you like, it's the end. There's no... There's no middle 
you know like there's no like inching forward and it's it's just depends on where the the ballots came from and got dumped in so you really can't even play that game until you've just counted this whole pot of votes yeah it's tough like it that's that's definitely part of it right it's not that it's a race that's being uh run during the counting all of all the votes are are in they just take some time to be counted so it's not like you know he was doing really great here and then there was an upset and he turned around but i also don't know of a better way to cover it maybe you do miles it just it it yeah, it's not a good analogy, but at the same time, it might be the best analogy that we have, especially if you're getting really invested in it. Well, they, I guess the one way I would improve on it is like, don't cover it like entertainment. Don't cover it like sports. Yeah, that's it's, fair. It's not, it's not sports. It's not entertainment. However, that is the bulk of our news today. And I, I hate like as a newspaper man saying like, we're, we're better or, or anything like this, but like, I just think cable news is just such garbage and so much of our, our radio updates are such garbage that we frame it the wrong way. We frame politics as sports and the reality is that so much and we cover we cover the horse race we cover all this polling instead of I think of how much we've talked about polling and money and how little we've actually talked about policy and implications on people's lives. Um, and even in the outcome of this election, the last four days, it's, there's so much about like the polling and the polling failure, which is important to like if you are a democratic or republican strategist to know where to allocate funds that is that is actually like very important in how you execute and strategize a race but for americans right now it's like all right what the polling isn't what's impacting their lives it's the policy it's what these people will do and we just get so little coverage of that when it comes to campaigns right uh let's let's jump into the local results because i think that you and i could talk about election minutia all day long <laughs> uh so let's jump into the local results and the breakdown of how door county voted uh do you have the list pulled up of the the election results uh yeah and this is pretty fascinating actually i mean Maybe to some people it's not, but um, just looking at how the vote breaks down in Door County and before Election Day, I was I did a little digging around just to see like, OK, t- there are some people who consider Door County to be a very red county. Um, and so I just wanted to go historical and see like what what actually is it. And it's more of like a purple county um, for at least in the presidential race for the last 30 years. It's been it has voted with the winning candidate since 1992. I think maybe even longer. I think at least 1992 um, in the presidential race. And, you know, it's voted for Clinton. It's voted for George Bush Jr. twice, um, Obama twice, Trump once, and now Biden. There are a lot of people who saw the Wisconsin results and saw that only two counties in the state flipped and Door County being one of them. I think Sauk County was the other flipped from Trump to um, the Democrat. And they looked at it like, what, how did, what's going on in Door County? Like, like this, this is a traditionally like deep red state. And I'm like, this is actually pretty normal for Door County to flip. I mean, you're talking about a few hundred vote difference, but the turnout here was insane. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, You and I both voted on election day, so we got to see kind of what things were doing. I voted down in Carlsville. And while there weren't any lines when I voted in the afternoon, there was still a steady stream of voters coming in and out. Um, I know that you saw some lines early on in the day. We had a couple different people who were out and about in Door County who were looking uh, at polling places to see what the turnout was. What was the turnout in Door County? Well, you had almost more than 20,000 votes cast in Door County for a county with a population estimated around 28,000. Um, so you've got 66%, roughly two thirds of all people who live here voted. Um, we don't really know like how that compares to registered voters right now because there's same day registration here. So um, it'll be interesting when the clerks tally all of the information and everything's updated to know what that percentage turnout was of registered voters. Um, but it was about 3,000 total votes more than in 2016, which was already a high turnout year. So you had, um, I think, uh, Hillary lost by about 500 votes to Donald Trump in 2016. Biden won by about 300 votes this year. But both Donald Trump and Biden received, or the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate received significantly more votes than they did the, the last time around. So I think Trump got 1,200 more votes than he did in 2016. Biden got about 2,000 more votes than Hillary got in 2016. So, and that's how he ended up making up that gap. So that was like, you, you kind of think like Door County is a high, highly engaged, high turnout county anyway. Um, so to see it actually increase that much was pretty astounding to me. Right. Uh, do we want to talk local elections uh, or, or state elections uh, in terms of the results and the breakdown there, moving away from the national side of things? Sure. Um, so even, so you w- might think that like with Biden in some years 
you might expect there to be a, a bit of a, a blue wave effect if Biden increases his turnout. Will that, in fact, um, uh, impact races down the ticket? We talked a little bit about this on the podcast last week, if that was one thing to watch for. And the answer was no. I mean, you, clearly a lot of people voted split ticket. So you have people going for Biden for president and Joel Kitchens for assembly and Mike Gallagher for Congress. Um, Gallagher and Kitchens both won handily in their races. Um, Kitchens with over 60% of the, or I think 56% of the vote in Door County, uh, defeating Kim Jensen for that assembly seat. And Gallagher with well over 60% of the vote in the district. I think he won something like 65 to 34% um, over Amanda Stuck. So that was probably a little bit surprising. Maybe, maybe not. I can't speak for what I haven't seen a lot of polling on these kind of races that certainly not publicly that said like what they expected. But for Amanda Stuck to to be, I think she announced her candidacy almost two years ago to end up with such a, a huge margin in the, in losing that race was a little bit surprising to me, um, especially given like some of the criticism of Congress. But I think Gallagher is a really popular candidate in this district. Yeah, I, I wasn't necessarily surprised to see uh, Republican votes and also you know, Democratic president votes, right? I wasn't necessarily right. surprised to see that split. That's think, pretty common for Door County historically. Sure. And and I, I guess it kind of, th that kind of lends itself to talk about how this presidential election may be different than elections that we've had in the past, right? Uh, people voting for different reasons, more so now than maybe, you know, two elections ago. So I, I, I guess I'm not surprised to see that in that way. Um, Anything else about the, the, the breakdown of the, the local results? Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Door County's historical voting record, just in terms of like if there were any surprises or not? Um, not, a, not a lot of surprises. Even Biden with a narrow win doesn't is, isn't a large surprise. Um, the you know, if you look historically, the assembly has been held by um, the, that assembly seat has been held by Republicans for more than 20 years. Um, the congressional seat has been held by Republicans for all but four years out of the last 40. Um, so seeing either of those stay Republican is, is not surprising. Um, the one other local result is that the, the Door County referendum on fair maps, which is, um, the referendum to approve a nonpartisan commission to, um, create the district maps for our state assembly and, uh, state Senate. That passed overwhelmingly. It's about 73%. So that is definitely a bipartisan issue that has broad support, no matter what um, background you are coming into the vote with. Right. And then the two school referendums both passed. Southern Door and Sevastopol both had operating referendums on the ballot. Each of those passed. Um, Sevastopol's a little closer, uh, passed with about 56%. Um, Southern Door's with about 60%, if I'm if I'm saying those numbers quite right. Right, and not, not surprising there. Uh, as we've talked about on the podcast plenty, uh, Door County has a pretty strong record of voting in favor of school rec referendums supporting education. I can understand the margin being a little bit less in Sevastopol coming off of a pretty major referendum two years ago. So it, that doesn't surprise me in that way. Um, yeah, there's also a, a problem of like differentiating for people between operating and capital expense referendums. Um, usually takes a lot of education. Um, these two school referendums were interesting in that they were put on the ballot somewhat late. Normally, a school will put some a referendum like that on about a year out, do a lot of public campaigning to let people know exactly what they're going for. Um, this time around, they, they put them on late, maybe just thinking, get lost in all the <laughs> um, campaign coverage. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, just a little bit different tactic there. And or maybe they're just that confident in their local communities that they they knew it was likely likely to pass. I'm just double checking those numbers. Um, and I was correct. Sevastopol, 55.9% voted yes. Southern Door, 60.2% voted yes. So both pretty strong margins um, in favor of those school referendums. Right. Uh, so like we talked about, we, we don't know the presidential election results as we're recording, probably will as you're listening to this. Um, anything to talk about in terms of what's going ahead? Uh, the Trump administration already said that they're going to request a recount in Wisconsin. Uh, so any any implications there uh, in terms of what we're looking at moving forward? Um, so it wouldn't be the first time that Wisconsin has had a recount. Um, this election in the presidential race is only the third closest Wisconsin election in the last 20 years. Bush v. Gore was closer and uh, John Kerry narrowly 
um, beat uh, George Bush Jr. the second time around, and that was a very close tally as well. So it's it's not uncommon for Wisconsin to be this close. When they've done those recounts, they haven't changed. They did do a recount in 2016 for the presidential election. I believe something like 300 votes flipped, and I think Donald Trump actually came out of that with a larger margin of victory by a couple of votes. So I wouldn't expect um, anything to change there. There are a lot of, I would say, unfounded allegations of fraud from yeah, that was the other thing I wanted to bring up. So there were there were uh, I was seeing a lot of reports of more people voting in Wisconsin than there were registered voters. But if you do, if you actually look at the correct numbers, number one, that was false. But number two, as we mentioned earlier, Wisconsin does have same day registration. So the number of votes that came in may be, in fact, larger than the number of registered voters on November 1st. Uh, but that you have to take into consideration the people who registered to vote the same day. There's that. And there's also people who are checking their my vote to see if their vote was registered and counted. And they're saying, well, it's not in there. So my vote didn't count. That's not the case. Um, Door County County Clerk uh, Jill Lau, a Republican, put a press release out yesterday just saying like, yeah, we haven't entered any of that yet. Like we don't with all the absentee ballots and everything, they, they wouldn't do that in a normal election, have it updated right away. They have up to 45 days after the election to get all that information updated and entered. Right now, they're preparing for the recount, handling the canvas, which is the certification of the vote. Um, so they've got other tasks at hand, and they actually like ask that people stop calling because their clerks are getting inundated with questions, and they just don't have the time right now to answer those all. But um, she said they are very confident in the accuracy of the Door County total anyway. Right. Um, there are some, it will be interesting when it's all added up. You know how I said like that the turnout was significantly higher in Door County than in past years. I am curious if when it all is said and done, if there is some impact from COVID in that people who relocated to the county during COVID either moved up here or at least temporarily moved into their second home or and are calling Door County home right now, maybe voted here and registered here versus going back to maybe Illinois or Milwaukee or wherever they li used to live. I I mean, I actually election day, I, I went and um, was getting a photograph of somebody that we'll run an article about in a couple of weeks who moved up here during the pandemic and just like finally made that jump. So I wonder if there might actually have been a population shift in Door County or to Door County as a result of the pandemic. Maybe that's just a few dozen anecdotal or maybe that's actually a few hundred people. I'm not sure. Right. Well, I mean, regardless of, of how small the number is, there's such a small number of people who vote in Door County anyway that even a few dozen is a, a decent chunk. Yeah, like Egg Harbor's turnout, they had, um, it depends which population sign you drive by in Egg Harbor, the village. There's one on County E that says 250, and then the ones on the highway say 201 <laughs> for their population. So it's a confused little town. Um, sorry, Ryan Heiss. Um, but they they had more than 201 people vote. So there's there's also a ton of condos in, in the village of Egg Harbor. There's um, as, as many or more lodging facilities in that little area than there are anywhere else in the county. So there actually just might be a lot of people who decided to move into their condos and are now voting there um, as a result of this pandemic situation. Right. So that is uh, kind of the election results breakdown. There are a number of resources for people to look at online. We have an entire election homepage on DoorCountyPulse.com where you can see the results, the results breakdown, as well as Door County's kind of historical voting record. So everything that we talked about today, you can check out online. Is there anything else election-wise before we move on to some COVID-19 updates? No, let's move on and let other people talk their faces off about the election. Right. So uh, tell me what's going on with COVID-19 in Door County. I know it's, you know, maybe taken a backseat to the election coverage in some way, which is scary to say, but also I feel like most people have been talking about the election and very few people have been talking about COVID. That doesn't mean that COVID numbers have paused while we've tried to figure this election out. Uh, where are we at now as we are officially into November? So the situation with COVID is not getting better in Door County, um, and it's not getting better throughout the state. This week, we'll report more than 200 cases over the week for the first time in Door County. We are now up to nine deaths. Um, the hospitalizations continue to not be like crazy high numbers in Door County, but they, they we're still getting a few every week, which for months and months we had none. And the hospitalizations across the state continue to climb. So every indicator um, regarding this virus is not good. And luckily right now it's a couple of nice days. So we have this, this weekend will be beautiful. So if you want to get outside and maybe see people at a distance in a field or something, this is a good weekend to do it. But as we all get stuck in a situation where we are going to be 
colder temperatures locked inside, um, it doesn't bode well for the the state of the virus. I think 5,900 cases yesterday in Wisconsin, an all-time record high, and more than 50 deaths. So I, I have some questions that I've been building up over the last couple of weeks in, in the meantime between we've talked about uh, COVID. So I, I hope you don't feel put on the spot, but I'm, I'm pretty confident in your ability to, to think on your feet here. I guess my first question is... Um, are there any sorts of demographic data for the virus right now? Is there any way of knowing age ranges or, or why we might be seeing such a big spike? We we went through the the vast majority of our busiest season in Door County, keeping cases relatively low. And then in September, we started to see this exponential increase kind of as we started to wean off of those really heavy summer months. So... Is there any sort of demographic or any sort of way to to know why the increase at this point? Um, there's there's correlation that you could speculate about, right? So there is take Door County in, in a microcosm. You have schools reopening, and this is not to say that like I would trace these to schools, but I also knowing the data and knowing how it's collected and traced, I also couldn't tell you that it's not just because I don't think we're tracing well enough to be able to confidently say that case that ended up that we're attributing to this business I don't I couldn't look at that and confidently say that like okay that didn't come from a kid coming from school to do this so um I I just don't think we have the data and to to really tell you exactly where it's coming from and that's not unique to Door County I think that's what you're seeing all over the place um there are tons of reports of people getting COVID in city of Milwaukee who never so much has got one call from public health so let let alone in-depth tracing of their contacts. So, and that's just a matter of manpower. Um, the, however, you can correlate it with the opening of schools. You can correlate it with the drop in temperature. So maybe more people going in and dining inside. Um, there might be, or more, not even, I don't want to put that on restaurants. I mean, even just like coming inside of homes and, and hanging out inside with other people. And you can correlate it with just complacency of people getting through the summer and going, you know what? And, and I count myself in that too, of going, all right, it, it didn't get here. Like we're okay, and it's it's easy to lie to yourself, and it's very tempting to do so. Like we all want to get back to normal. We all are sick of it, but then you do that, and you, you end up seeing the cases spread. Um, and there's also I know that just to talking to people in the industry, weddings and parties definitely increased come August. Like at the yeah, I know that most weddings were canceled or postponed through July. And then by the end of July, people started having them and not just small weddings. We're talking 150 person weddings um, and starting to try and do funerals and stuff. I There's somebody I know well who went to a, um, I should say to not just weddings, but also funerals. There was somebody who I know who went to a funeral and six people from that funeral ended up getting sick. Um, some of them very sick, going visit the hospital kind of sick. So as people let their guard down, it, it seems to spread. And that's that's all speculation and that's all correlation, not causation. But it, it's there. I mean, it seems fairly intuitive. Right. And I feel like that's going to be the biggest challenge of this next portion of coverage is, you know, trying to help people understand why cases are going up. Because I feel like there's a lot of anxiety for people who have been working from home, been limiting their exposure as much as possible, not having parties, you know, widening their circle maybe just a little bit to their family. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot of anxiety among people like that. And, and I would count myself in in that group as well of being like, I've, I've done everything as safely as I possibly can, but numbers are, are really going up. So am, am I at danger continuing the way that I've been? Or is, is the number going up because of things outside of that bubble, right? So like you said, school, parties, weddings, that kind of thing. If there's a greater correlation for that for numbers going up, then I feel like that lowers the anxiety levels for people who have been, you know, trying to be as safe as possible throughout this entire thing, knowing that like you're you're still on the right track rather than just being like, you know, it, it's becoming so much more prevalent that, you know, even a grocery store trip might be the cause or, or something like that, or, or those no, the, the chance of exposure is going up to such a degree that even the, the bare minimum that you're doing right now is getting more dangerous. I feel like there's anxiety in that. And I feel like the a change, changing the way that we report on this and report on the numbers, I feel like is the next big step in covering this. So with that, Miles, uh, why don't we why don't we move on to our final bit? Uh, podcast is running a little long, but I think there's a lot of really great information and discussion in this one. I don't think anybody's 
going to be upset that we talked too long about <laughs> you know these two important things. That being said, uh, you've got a great conversation coming up here with Deb Fitzgerald on some of the the stuff that's been going down at Fincantieri Bay Shipbuilding over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I don't know that we've talked about it on the podcast before because we've been waiting for the story to unfold. But can you give us just a, a brief summary of what we're about to hear, and then we'll jump into that? Yeah, um, Fincantieri Bay Shipbuilding has a pretty massive expansion plan to handle a new contract with the U.S. Navy. And Deb has been covering that for us down in Surgeon Bay. There has been some controversy. So we just wanted to kind of hash out where that stands, what decisions the city has made, and what some of the objections of those neighbors were. Great. Well, then, thank you so much for chatting with me, nerding out about uh, election coverage and, and talking about stuff. We will jump into that interview next. Thanks, Andrew. Fincantieri Bay Shipbuilding is Door County's largest employer and has been for decades. The shipyard's workforce varies from anywhere between 500 all year to nearly 1,000 employees when the winter fleet comes in for maintenance each year. Earlier this year, the shipyard and its Green Bay Partner Shipyard at Fincantieri Marinette Marine was awarded a $795 million contract to help build the Navy's new guided missile frigate, a contract that Fincantieri's Vice President Todd Thays says could provide jobs for a decade or longer. But to do that, the shipyard will have to upgrade and dramatically expand its facilities on the edge of the city's historic 3rd Avenue district and across from a working-class neighborhood. Peninsula Pulse editor Deborah Fitzgerald joins the podcast today to explain why this has become a controversial expansion in the city of Sturgeon Bay. Deb, thanks for joining the podcast. You're welcome. Um, tell us what Fincantieri is looking to do at its property at 605 North 3rd Avenue. Okay, well, you uh, kind of summarized the reason why they're looking to do what they're going to be doing. But basically, they're going to be uh, expanding an existing building. They're adding about uh, 60,000 square feet onto an existing building Um which is about 1.3 acres. And then they're going to be building a brand new building that's um, about 110 feet tall and is 410 feet by 210 feet with mega doors on both sides. Um, and that building is about two acres, I want to say. So is, <laughs> is there anything that in, in the city of Sturgeon Bay that compares to that size of a building or that um, height? Apparently, the well, their, the, their big blue grant, gantry crane is um, 176 feet tall. So that gives you some you know perspective on that. And the uh, Maritime Museum's tower is apparently the tallest thing on the landscape now within the city, which is 118 feet tall. And pretty small footprint, however. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't think it's anything like 410 by 210. Yeah. Um, so how do they do this? It's They have this property. The shipyard's been there forever. So can they just do this or do they have to get like special accommodations? Well, there are certain things that they would need to do uh, automatically, which is the Aesthetic Design and Review Board. And that's a committee that takes a look at um, the different buildings that are being constructed downtown. But because these buildings or, uh, yeah, both of them actually, um, were, they needed variances. So the current height within the industrial, heavy industrial district was 45 feet. So at 110 feet, they needed a variance it's on that. drastically larger. Right. And then they also, to expand the existing building, um, because that was already an encroachment into the setback, which is a little complicated, but <laughs> because it was already a, an encroachment, they needed another variance. So they got that variance as well to extend that. And this was done back in August um, before the Sturgeon Bay Zoning Board of Appeals, which is basically the quasi-judicial body that decides those things. Okay. Um, how common is it for somebody to get a variance like this? Do you know? Um, well, you know, my uh, my history here obviously is uh, a lot shorter than the history of the shipbuilding industry, but apparently there have been six to seven times that variances have been requested, and largely they are from the shipbuilding industry. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's not... It is actually uh, something that a city should consider when they are giving 
when they're giving variances on a regular basis, the uh, the League of Wisconsin Municipalities basically says that, you know, it's not doing um, a city's code any justice if they are always giving variances hmm. for something. So when they are doing that, then they should take a look at actually changing it. And the plan commission, the city plan commission did do that. They took a look at changing it permanently, but it was happening in conjunction with what Fincantieri needed. So hmm. back in um, August, the plan commission did say, hey, do we want to actually change this for good so that people don't have to keep coming back to get these variances? And the planning commission decided um, not to change it permanently. Hmm. Um, they decided that, you know, they'd like to keep it before the plan commission, you know, for some control. So what, so they decided not to, and then what about, how do the neighbors feel about this? Because this, um, if for those unfamiliar with Fincantieri, like right across the street, it's pretty densely populated, mm -hmm. um, single family housing neighborhood, also some brand new rental apartments in that neighborhood as well. Mm -hmm. So how, how did those neighbors feel? Well, it's, um, it's been an emotional process. I want to say that, you know, at most of the meetings where public hearings have been held, there has been, you know, testimony, very passionate testimony from a few, I would say a handful of neighbors. Um, uh, leading this would be two in particular. They are always there. Um, Kelly Catarazzoli and Hans Christian. Kelly being the former city council woman. Correct. And Hans, very active in, in local politics. Yes. And they both have businesses across the street and residences across the street. Um, they object to the the noise. Uh, apparently, the, the noise is already something that they have to contend with. Um, the dust, the paint overspray, um, the aesthetics... And they believe that those issues will only be compounded once these new buildings are constructed. Now, they they bought relatively recently. Mm -hmm. Like, they, they bought knowing the shipyards there. They did. Um, and I did ask them both uh, why they had done that. And they said at the time, um, it was in 2008, actually, when Hans Christian purchased his property. And he said that he wanted to live, you know, in a harbor village, basically. And at that time, there were more buffers uh, at that time, the shipbuilder had not purchased the street from the city and had not expanded its footprint further south. Yeah, yeah. Yes, toward the um, historic district downtown. Yeah, so, the city of Sturgeon Bay sometimes is hard to say direction-wise because <laughs> I think of it as north side, south side, but it's east side, west side. So yes. it, it throws everything off. <laughs> right, right. So they had the character and um, in, in their opinion has changed since since they have purchased it. <laughs> and certainly with a 110-foot building, it will change, you know, permanently and forever what it looks like down there. Yeah, it's one thing to buy next to a shipyard that has a 45 foot tall building. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're more than doubling that. that. If I bought next to a restaurant and it was a um, 20 stool bar that was a quiet neighborhood place, and then I'm like, okay, I'm prepared to live next to that. Mm -hmm. I might not be prepared to live next to a massive sports bar with 500 stools. Right. You know, so right. I, I get that where they're coming from. Yes. Um, so what are they doing about it? Well, what they did after the Zoning Board of Appeals decided to uh, grant the variances to Fincantieri so that they could build their building at the size and scale that they wanted to build it, um, under the this quasi-judicial body, uh, statutes allow people to file an appeal with circuit court. And so that's what Kelly and Hans did. And where does that sit now? Well, after they filed that, what it would basically do with the ZBA decision is, is stay that decision. Okay. So that would mean that Fincantieri can't proceed. Okay. However, they then asked the city of Sturgeon Bay to permanently alter their zoning code to meet those requirements so that they could proceed. So is that similar to earlier the plan commission says, no, we're not going to change our code. And now Fincant and they say no. Fincantieri then comes and says, we want you to permanently alter your code. And the city says, yes. yes? <laughs> can you do that? The city says yes. Um, I don't know if you can do that by law. Um, I don't know at this point um, because this all happened just uh, last week when they decided to, the city council heard um, these, uh, heard testimony, had a public hearing on this. And after hearing that public testimony, held the first reading of the ordinance that would change it. And the second reading of that 
ordinance would be held at their next meeting on November 17th. Okay. So this applies to Fincantieri Bay Shipbuilding, but it would also um, apply to all the industrial park. What Are there any other businesses that would make use of this these height expansions and, and size expansions? Well, uh, ostensibly, and it's most of the industrial park, not all of the industrial park, but most of it. And okay. Marine Travel Lift did write a letter of support, and uh, they seem to indicate that this kind of gave them a green light to expand in the future if they wanted to. And another business that supported this move was uh, Roan Salvage. So hmm. they too thought that it was a good move to eliminate these restrictions. So let's say I'm driving in to Sturgeon Bay from the south and I'm coming down the four lane approaching the Bayview Bridge. The industrial park is to my right there. Um, would this apply then like somebody could build a 110 foot tall building in that area? On the eastern edge, on the eastern side of the industrial park. Okay. So that's where they could that's where they could do that. That'd be an that's an interesting decision to make mm-hmm. to suddenly say like here at the doorstep to the county, um, we're going to allow for a massive expansion. That's maybe that's good for business. Maybe it's a very big question mark for the aesthetic of the city. And that's the that's the argument, right? I mean, I don't think that there are too many people who don't understand the economic impact that Fincantieri has on Sturgeon Bay and the whole county, really. Um, I don't think anybody would argue with that. So it's a difficult balancing act to be able to preserve those reasons why everybody lives here, those reasons why everybody lives in Sturgeon Bay, and the economic impacts. So I guess that's probably one of the more frustrating things that I see as a bystander is that there's kind of like a Kafka-esque feel to this. <laughs> you know, you have people um, standing up and, and, and passionately stating what they're stating and feeling a sense of injustice and unfairness and like nobody's listening to them. And and then that's what it feels like, is nobody is listening to them because then they sit down after their three minutes and the council goes to the next person and then the next person and questions aren't answered. It's just like throwing their voice into a canyon. I mean, hmm. it's kind of a weird process. And it and then the process moves along and they just approve or, or take the next step. Correct. It is something, and, and thankfully you've join the team and I don't have to cover all the meetings, <laughs> but it's something that I witnessed so many times down in, in Sturgeon Bay as well. And also in other communities, but Sturgeon Bay, it's the most jarring hmm. in that um, there are some communities up here where you cover their board meeting. And if somebody speaks up in uh, the open session portion, the the board will often acknowledge like we can't take action on that. It's mm-hmm. not an agenda item. We, we don't like to address those types of things. It could be an open meetings violation, but that is... We appreciate that input. We're going to take that into consideration. Please follow up with me and we'll we'll talk about this and maybe put it on the next agenda. There's usually like some acknowledgement right. of the validity of the person I- involving themselves in government. Right. In and the process. Bay, in Sturgeon Bay, it just it just stops. There is mm-hmm. no response in most cases. That's at, been at my that experience. Yeah. yeah. And that's been my experience, too. I mean, and that that like I said, that is the really frustrating part. And when you when you pair that with um, Fink and Thierry being able to get up and do a big, huge presentation that takes 20 to 30 minutes with PowerPoint presentations and all kinds of information, which Question, is great. Questions from the council. Questions from the joking council. Joking back and forth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, really, there is an interplay there. There is a there is a dialogue. And it's intended to inform people, which it does. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, once it comes to the public comment period, it's almost like a switch is turned off and a panel comes down and they're just throwing their voices at there. There's there's really no acknowledgement. What it is 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 one sided. uh, I would have to say soliloquies or monologues. Um, So I make my statement and then before they vote, you know, counts aldermen will alder people will actually state what they, you know, why they're voting the way that they're voting. But so it's not a dialogue. It's in, just in a statement back. In your experience there, through this process, because there have been a couple of different meetings where this has come up. So there's the public comment session and I and people will come out and speak then. Has there been like a an agenda like session for the neighbor to present issues that the council could come back with questions? No, there is there is nothing of that kind. 
it is a public comment period. So there is always a, you know, a proposal of what's going to be voted upon. And there's a public comment period. And I, I get the feeling that they feel like that's what they're supposed to do. That's hmm. And that's it. And that, that's really fast because there's got to be hundreds of people who live within four or five blocks. Yes. That's a large residential area. Right. And so you'd think like you go, that'd be like having the essentially the, the entire village of Sister Bay is within that. That's how much population is probably right around there. And if you were going to take something that would impact that many people, you would think and, and it, they are totally right. I shouldn't say right or wrong, but I totally understand like why you would allow like, hey, this person wants to expand here. We need a detailed presentation. Come mm -hmm. up with a PowerPoint and walk us through what you're looking at. They should do that and question it and make sure they're cross more so to to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. um, but then on the flip side, you should also do some outreach to those neighbors and say, what kind of concerns do you have about this particular project? And we want to ask you questions about your concerns. Mm -hmm. You know, like right. I would think that would be part of that interplay just because I think in general, if you get people to participate in government, on the local level in these boring meetings. <laughs> right. You you should want to encourage that. I mean, yes, and you know, that is district 1 and and for instance, you know, the the barriers or the the ways that it, it's made not easy for people to participate voluntarily, like the zoning board of appeals meeting that was held at noon during a workday. Hmm. So, you know, you get notice of that. What are you going to do? Take time off of work to go to it. And then there's the presentation at first, and then you get your three minutes, and, and it's over. Well, on the flip side, has the um, leaders of Fincantieri Bay Shipbuilding, have they privately worked with the neighbors and had meetings with them about this expansion? Um, I don't know about, you know, all of their interactions with um, Fincantieri officials, but in talking with a couple of the neighbors, they've said that they have had dialogues like, okay. and they have, they have been open to talking with them about, you know, some of the changes that are taking place. I think at this point in time, it's a little bit heated yeah. and, um, you know, emotional, and it might be at a level right now where communication is not, you know, happening as freely as it usually does. But I get the impression that there is that relationship there at times, and it's uh, something that they could continue to help grow, or the city could actually even continue to help foster. Yeah, so it is a fascinating one to watch as, as Sturgeon Bay grapples with this. You know, it, over the last couple of years, you have, we want to be more of a tourist town. We want to be a more attractive community. But part of what makes it attractive is that historic shipbuilding cluster. And it it's weird. It's like industry, but it's also part of their tourism marketing. Mm -hmm. And it's such a big part of their identity. And like you said, like Hans and, and some of these other folks, they they moved to that neighborhood in part drawn to that. Sure. Just, but you sort of like, did you, well, we only want so much of it. So you can right. see it from both sides. You can definitely see the city saying, hey, this is a really valuable industry. Like mm -hmm. we're lucky to have a diverse economy that's not just tourism like Northern Door, that we have some economy that we have or that we have some industry and massive industry. Um, but then you you see the push from the other side of like, well, how much do we have to allow and how many concessions do we have to make to keep that? Because mm -hmm. they've lost two of the main shipyards over the last 25 years. Right. And also, so. I mean, if you're looking at the tourism aspect of it, you like seeing the big ships, right? Yeah. But, you know, one of the points made was now you won't even be able to see the big ships. Well, that's a fair point. <laughs> right, from the waterfront. And then the final thing that they had happen, um, they did want their zoning change. They own, you know, all the land um, that is beneath the train depot, the former Peninsula Plaza building, and the Red Oak Winery. So sure. they have requested and received actually a zoning change to change those buildings from, I mean, to change their whole property down there from commercial to industrial mm. because they're building a smaller addition on one of the buildings and it would have encroached into the commercial. Well, the plan commission didn't necessarily go for that very well. So they modified the plan to keep those three buildings out of that zoning change. Hmm. And then the council decided to, you know, preserve a little bit more of the land north of the train depot building. So that's staying commercial, but the rest of it was zoned industrial. And one thing that the council did um, that evening was to, to hold its first and second reading in one night. So they really fast-tracked that through. Hmm. 
Yeah. So you get this, like, Sturgeon Bay's always had that issue of the allegations of the good old boy network or of, of underhandedness or of not letting the people have their say. That's been an, an issue as long as I've been alive, really, mm-hmm. that, that they've heard that stuff. So then, you, like you said, they fast track this and it seems like I, I, you can see why people would see it that way. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying mm-hmm. like, I, from an outsider who hasn't covered it as closely, like you can see where that comes into play. Right. Well, and even if you are, um, you know, pro shipbuilding business, which most people I would have to say and are just to a certain extent. Right. And if the city is definitely still, again, there is that balance, right? You don't just give one corporation everything they want without actually allowing the neighbors to feel like they're being heard. Yeah. Now, maybe we'll get that with the beautification plan because that is something that Vincantieri is required to work with the city on. Yeah. So hopefully they will be able to come up with some kind of a barrier between the neighborhood and the new, you know, southern yard where all of the activity is going to be held. Yeah, you have a difficult spot there because it really is squeezed against the lake. It's not like you can just like move these buildings farther into the bay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then it's not like your normal situation where, say, like in, in Liberty Grove, there's a storage unit being built and they say, OK, you got to hide that and put some buffers and do some mounding and plant some cedars. Well, it's going to be hard for Fincantieri to find 140 foot cedars to, mm, to right. hide this building. Or, you know, it's one thing to buffer the noise from... Um, a bar or a grill, it's another thing to try and buffer the noise from a massive Navy sh- ship being built. Um, sure. And they're saying that it will be because it's going to be inside now mm-hmm. um, as opposed to outside because that's the way they have to do it. But, you know, it it can't be the first time that a shipyard has actually had to build a buffer, like a big buffer in right. between a neighborhood. And, and after speaking with a couple of people who have who have taken it to the extent of looking at shipyards all over the world to find out how they are actually constructed in neighborhoods, there are apparently some pretty wonderful barriers, including hmm. a Marinette, the, you know, the company's sister company. So that there is a, there is a buffer. Clearly there's not as much residential around it. If you look at, um, if you look at a map, you know, it's got suitable things Hmm. surrounding it, but there, there, there should probably be a point at which the city says, okay, you know what, this is getting pretty big. We should probably start to really think about how we can put some buffer up. So let me get this straight. Are you suggesting that perhaps (laughs) <laughs> Somebody could look outside of the county borders to pot- find a potential solution to a problem. We don't have to figure it out from whole cloth. I'm just suggesting, <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, something you have to do. But, you know, like you said, we're not going to be able to put up a 110 foot arborvitae, you know, and, and call it a buffer. Yeah. So. Well, with that crazy harebrained uh, suggestion there, Deb, uh, we'll, we'll call it a wrap on Fincantieri. Thanks for walking us through uh, what is a pretty complicated issue and making it at least somewhat graspable. All right. Thanks for having me, Miles. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.